Hi, I'm Dan Krinas, host of the Leader of Learning podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to episode 97 of the Google Teacher Tribe podcast, your source for the latest Google for Education news, tips, tricks, and ideas you can use in class tomorrow. I'm Matt Miller from Ditch That Textbook. And I think I'm Casey Bell from Shake Up Learning. <laughs> I, it's, it's been a long 97 episodes, so I'm just happy yeah. to be here. <laughs> We have a lot in store for you today, including some very interesting Google News and updates, I think, as well as jumping into some resources to help you integrate Google in the primary grades. That's something that I think a lot of teachers struggle with in those younger grades and with those littles trying to figure out what exactly can we do. And as Christine Pinto tells us, believe they can. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Matt, you ready? I believe we can. Yes, let's do it. So to kick us off on our news and updates, we've got some new things that are coming to Chrome OS. So if you use devices that have Chrome OS, you might have Chromebooks, you might have Chrome tablets. Uh, this is the stuff that is heading in your direction. So the one that piqued my interest the most of some of these updates we'll talk about is this thing called virtual desks that's coming. So if you've ever used a MacBook before, you may be familiar with this. MacBook has these multiple desktops. And so with a desktop, it's just like the regular desktop that's on your, um, you know, like your laptop or your computer, but you can have multiple desktops set up. So in this case, it's like one screen and it's got certain windows or programs or tabs or whatever on that one screen. And then you can flip to a completely different one and have different ones on it. So this is nice if you're working on tasks for, you know, like one particular project or one assignment or one class, and then you need to leave those where they are. And then go move to something else. You know, think about it kind of like having two different desks and you get up and you leave stuff on one and you go walk over to the other. Um, so this functionality is coming to Chrome OS and they're calling it virtual desks. And what will happen is whenever you open the overview, which allows you to see all of the windows that you have open in Chrome OS, you're going to be able to tap on this little button in the top right hand corner that says new desk. And that'll create a new desktop. And so then that way you can take your you know, you can take your windows that you have open or your um, browsers that you have open and stick them in those different desks so that you can use them for your different tasks. So pretty cool thing. Um, a couple of other things that are coming to Chrome OS, you have a click to call button. So if you have an Android phone like I do, then uh, there will be a place where you can actually click and send that phone number directly over to your phone. So you don't have to actually type it, type it in. 
We've got the print without hassle. So now um, any compatible printers are going to automatically show up in your printer list without any extra setup. So they're basically trying to reduce the number of steps, the number of clicks that you need to actually save printers and use printers, which is really nice. So a couple of different things coming to Chrome OS that's exciting. Um, if you use those Chromebooks or those Chrome tabs, then just kind of keep an eye open for some of these features as they roll out. Yeah, I'm with you. Of all of these things, the virtual desk is definitely the most intriguing. I'll be interested to see if they change the way we can access different accounts on a Chromebook, because that would be fantastic if we could set up desks for different accounts. Oh, yeah. And toggle in a more efficient way, kind of like we do on other devices. So I'm excited to see where this goes. The next thing that I want to share is going to take us a little bit of a different direction, but I think it's appropriate given this is episode 97 of the podcast. And this comes from the keyword blog and it's called Want to Make a Podcast, Five Tips to Get You Started. And we've talked to so many people on the podcast who have since created their own and we get lots of questions about how did you get started, what to do. So I thought this was an interesting take coming from Google, especially since it's not really specific about any Google product, but they are, of course, promoting their Google Podcasts app, which is pretty awesome, by the way, if you listen to podcasts and you have Android. So here are the tips. Number one, define your who. And I think you'll find this also applies to when you start blogging or sharing in any other realm. You got to know your audience. What is your why for making your podcast and who's going to listen? So they're giving you some prompts. My show is about blank and on it, you'll hear blank and you should listen if you are blank. So I don't think we did any of that, Matt, <laughs> when we started. I yeah. think we just kind of said, yeah, Google sounds good. Let's go with that. And we went with it. So I think with those three <laughs> questions, I think it sounded a little bit like this. My show is about Google and on it, you'll hear Matt and Casey. Google. And you should listen <laughs> if you are awesome. And those are not very good answers to all of that, but that's about as far as we got. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. We were, we were not that great at the planning thing. But number two is about structure. So in terms of these tips, once you define who you're making your show for, you need to think about the format of your show. If you are going to have some banter is what we call it here on the Google Teacher Tribe. In fact, uh, our producer, Chris, in the beginning used to encourage us to have a little more banter. I think now he probably wants us to pull back, but before we were very much by the book, here's the outline, let's do this, let's knock this out. And we discovered that people actually like to hear a little bit of our personalities coming through. So think about your structure. Number three is to prepare for interviews. If you're going to have guests on your show, what is that going to look like? What kind of questions do you want to ask? What kind of guests do you want? Number four, write the way you talk. And if your listeners connect with you, you need to sound like yourself. You know, so make sure that that is, is coming through. Again, it's your personality. And number five, to connect with people. So once you've made your show, getting those listeners and connecting with people so that they can find you. Because there are so many podcasts out there, but they've got some additional resources here in, in the post to help you if you're getting started with a podcast. But if that's something that you've sort of 
been thinking about in the back of your mind that you want to start a podcast, whether that's for you, for your school, something personal, something professional, whatever it is, there's some some great resources. And I hope you you go ahead and make that goal happen for yourself. So our next item on our news and updates has to do with the dot new. And if you're not familiar with the dot new, let me tell you, it's it's a pretty cool thing that I use pretty regularly. Google rolled out not too long ago, a way to create new files within different Google apps um, using .new at the end. So for example, if you type docs.new, it creates a brand new Google Doc. Sheets.new, slides.new, forms.new. Those are kind of the ones that, that we've had to this point. We have three new ones. So um, the one that I'm probably the most excited about of the three is the cal.new one. Cal.new is to add a new calendar event. And I use my Google Calendar so often, I can I could totally use this like all the time. There's also keep.new, which will add a new Google Keep note if you use Google Keep. And then there's also sites.new, which will create a new Google site. Now, what's interesting about this is those are the main ones for the, the Google apps. But there are other dot news outside of Google also. For instance, if you type in playlist.new, it's going to create a new Spotify playlist. Story.new will create a new post on Medium if you use Medium for a blog. Canva.new creates a new design on Canva. Uh, there's WebEx.new for a new um, WebEx meeting room, um, so on and so forth. So lots and lots of them that are out there. Those are probably some of the best ones. But um, I mean, I use Slides.new all the time to create brand new slide presentations. So if you're not using these .new things, that may be your one big takeaway for today. Yes. And I use the dot new all the time. I was really excited to learn that sites was doing that and it's creating it in the new Google sites, which it's been sort of driving me crazy that when you go to sites.google.com, you're still taken to classic sites and I've pretty much let go of classic sites. So anyway, those are exciting. And I like the fact that we're seeing other companies who are now using this and not just Google but, you know, being able to do that, because I'm definitely going to be using that Canva one as well. Mm-hmm. So I've got another post here from the Keyword blog. And this is from Vint Surf, who is VP and Chief Internet Evangelist at Google. But he's also been around for a while. And what this is all about is celebrating the top moments from 50 years of the Internet. Yes, we have had the Internet for 50 years, y'all. And it's pretty interesting to scroll through this. There's there's a lot of things that get really techy in this list, but it's pretty much a timeline of 17 different events. And the first one is October 29th, 1969. The first packet was sent. This pioneered our understanding of operational packet switching technology, which prepared us for the subsequent development of the Internet. So this was the birth, so to speak. This was the seed that got us to where we are today on a podcast about Google. None of these things would exist (laughs) back then. So really taking us further and, and looking at some different things. I really wanted some other things in this timeline, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to skip down to 1993, the release of the Mosaic Browser. 
Who remembers Mosaic? I wish what I was looking for was, oh, wait, it's the IPO. Okay, hold on. I was looking for Netscape. So, you know, the big, the Netscape browser. Yeah. But 1993 was the release of Mosaic, which was something that was available to the general public and was a big stepping stone to what we know today because it was previously just the chosen few who had access. And in 1995, the IPO of Netscape Communications triggered a new era in technology. So what they call the dot-com boom of 1995. Man, this makes me feel so old right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going to jump to April 23rd of 2005. The first YouTube video was uploaded. So yes. Do you remember life before YouTube? Uh, it's hard to imagine how how we access so much information and could watch anything that we wanted at any given time. But it all began in 2005. And then down at the bottom, he really just kind of lumped 2019 all the way to 2069, the next 50 years. And he says, in the next five decades, I believe that computer communications will be completely natural like using electricity. You won't think about it anymore. Access will be totally improved. Think thousands of low earth orbit satellites and speeds will be higher with 5G and optical fiber and billions of network devices with increased capabilities. So a, gr a great thing to think about is the future. And I really do hope it is much more natural, but I I feel like I lose a limb if I lose internet access anyway. So I, I feel like it's it's become part of me. Maybe we have merged. Yeah, I think so. And it all started, think about it, it all started with the sending of a packet. And folks, we're not talking about worksheet packets here. This was this was a whole different thing 50 years ago. So now if you want to get uh, any more information about any of these things, you can head to our show notes at googleteachertribe.com slash 97. Let's talk about... Google tools for the little ones in our classroom. So today we are going to focus on those primary grades and talking about different ways that we can integrate technology and use Google tools more meaningfully with our itty bitties. And I love working with the younger groups. It is a complete parting of the ways from where I used to teach in the middle school classroom. So I really have to switch my thinking and switch my brain. And I connect with a lot of primary teachers and Matt and I have collected lots of resources here to share. And I think one of the, the things that we must kick off with is the fact that we have talked a little bit about this before. So we are at episode 97, keep in mind. But way back in episode six, we had Christine Pinto on the podcast, and Christine co-authored a book with Alice Keeler called Google Apps for Littles. And so that is still one of my go-to resources for helping support those primary grades. So there are a lot of great ideas. How she uses Chromebooks in a one-to-one -one situation with Kinder blows my mind. So it's still one of my top resources when we come to this topic. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, that's that's definitely where one of the first places that that I go because really there are lots of opportunities for these um younger students to be able to interact with Chromebooks and to be able to interact with Google apps and, you know, just a, a variety of the parts of the G Suite. And it's just like what Casey was saying earlier. You know, we quote um we quote Christine and say that, hey, yes, they can. Yes, they they absolutely can um, work with a lot of this stuff. And so when we start to look at some of the things that the littles can do with some of the Google tools, one of my favorite places to go actually is to go to Google Sheets, which is kind of interesting because Google Sheets is not one of my strengths Um as, as a, a Google user myself and as using it in my own class. But I think for this, I think this is a really, really good uh, route to go. For instance, um, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen Christine write about that I've seen other people do also is just to use, um, to use Google Sheets for a simple sorting activity. You know, I've seen, for instance, you give uh, kids a handful of M&Ms or gummy bears. And first of all, if you give them a handful of M&Ms and gummy bears, they better be able to eat it. And they probably want to eat it right away. But you go, no, 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 wait, we have to we have to graph them first. So you have them sort them out by the different colors. And then they start with this Google Sheets template where they're able to do just a simple bar graph. And then by changing the color of those cells inside of the bar graph, they're able to create this bar graph and, you know, show, show what they've got. And then of course, from there, we can go deeper into the numbers and say, you know, which one has the most, which one has more than this. Uh, if we need it, if we wanted to have an equal number of these two, how many more would we need? And so it starts to ask all of these questions where we can get deeper and deeper into our numbers. So that's definitely a good one. Um, there's also another one, um, and we've got a link to the template here in our show notes at googleteachertribe.com slash 97. And that's a link to the pixel art template. This is one created by Alice Keeler that I love to reference. In fact, um, I was in my friend Gina Ruffcorn's fifth grade class in Iowa, and we were doing some pixel art in that class. And it's really neat, A to see what kids will create when given the opportunity to do this pixel art, because it really does help them to sort of expand their minds and where their creativity will go. But B, with this particular pixel art template, it uses conditional formatting. And so what you can do with that is Alice has it coded so that whenever you put in a certain number, it's going to change that little square into a color. And so it starts to expose kids to the idea of conditional formatting, even if we don't explicitly teach it to them. And that's sort of the same thing with that um, sorting activity I talked about earlier. It does start to introduce some of those spreadsheet concepts to kids at an early age so that maybe as they get older, they're not spreadsheet averse. Maybe they're not so nervous about it. So, um, you know, Sheets, I think, is a really good place for um for us to start it's i think it's a, a really good point because there's that nice structure already built into it and it makes it easy for kids to use and you know i know adults who are afraid of google sheets uh -huh. so the fact that we're talking about using this with our youngest students makes me so happy that exposure is only going to help them be more confident with that tool and as matt was sharing there's a lot of different things that we can set up in terms of templates and we're really using google sheets in an alternative way than what it's 
necessarily originally created for. You know, Google Sheets wasn't made to create pixel art, Mm -hmm. but we can get as creative as we want by using some of those tools like conditional formatting. And one of my favorite lessons from Christine that I actually had her share in the ShakeUp Learning book is called Models and Equations in Google Sheets. And every time I show this to teachers, I'm, first of all, I tell them, I don't care what grade you teach, you should be impressed by this <laughs> because it is brilliant and it's brilliant that we are introducing the idea of equations at such such a young age. We are building those foundational skills to help those students later understand equations in algebra. And essentially what happens in the sheet, it's similar to what Matt explained with the conditional formatting. And when you type in a certain number, it turns the cell into a color. Well, what Christine did was she coded it so that they then count those colors and write an equation. For instance, There are three green cells and two orange cells. So then they type three plus two and they have to solve it. And then she's also coded this so that it checks the answer, which is brilliant. So this is helping them learn how to make five. They're going to learn the various ways that they can make five. But there's also templates in here for making 10 and making 20. So you can go into those next grade levels as well. But I love this. She's got a free template. And of course, we've got this all in our show notes as well. But I love the idea of using Google Sheets at any level, please. If you if you have students who don't have any exposure to Google Sheets, make this a priority because Google Sheets can really help us do a lot of different things. And in this data-driven world, it is only going to get bigger. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, Sheets is something that I use on a pretty regular basis. I know in lots of, uh, obviously in lots of career fields, then that's that's something. Just like Casey said, it is something that's going to continue to get bigger. Um, since we were on the topic of using some of these templates, I wanted to share something that um, I learned from Chris Shiner, who is a um, primary teacher. And he wrote a guest blog post for my Ditch That Textbook blog, sharing a bunch of uh, G Suite templates that you can use with K to two students, and several of these are in Google Slides. Which um, you know, Slides is a really great place to create some of those templates, some of those drag and drop type of things. I know I've seen a good post on Casey's blog. I've got something on mine also that talks about those kinds of templates. And so Chris has shared a whole bunch of them that he's created, and he's done a really nice job at making them look attractive and clean and colorful and everything. And so a couple of the examples, if you can start to wrap your brain around what kind of drag and drop activities you could do. He's got, for instance, a CVC word builder. So you're thinking consonant, vowel, consonant. And he's got all of these consonants and vowels and the vowels are red in the middle and they kind of look like little puzzle pieces. So you're only able to put them together if they, they fit together just right. And then there's a base 10 notebook that he's got. And so you've got your, you know, your, your base 10, you know, your rods and your, your little cubes. And so if you type a number in this little square, then the students are able to duplicate over the 10 rods and then the individual ones and put them together. Um, just all sorts of things like that. What we used to have to, um, 
create as manipulatives or go out and buy as manipulatives uh, so that students could use them with their hands and see it. Now, all of a sudden, we can do a lot of these things on a tool like slides where you can drag and move things around like that. So, um, you know, in this post, which we've got a link to in the show notes, Chris has 20 different activities that you might want to use in the K-2 classroom. And you know what? Some of these you could use beyond the K-2 classroom. And even if you teach older groups like, uh, you know, middle school or high school kids, um, you know, these templates and really just about anything we're talking about in this episode can probably be scaled up to work with your students too. Absolutely. Even from my post on how to create those drag and drop activities, I think the next day someone shared with me the activity they made to teach the phases of the moon and even going Mm. deeper into other higher level skills. So it's very easy to take these things and run with it. And that's what we like here on the Google Teacher Tribe. I want to talk about something that's a little bit more difficult to face in the primary grades and a question that I get very often when it comes to Google Classroom. Is Google Classroom appropriate for the primary grades? Probably Uh, more specifically asking in kinder when a lot of your students are just learning how to read and Google Classroom is still very textual driven and not quite as visual as some other applications. I know Seesaw is really become a go-to for the primary grades. And I've also discovered that, or discovered, like I'm some sort of um, adventurer. <laughs> I was discovering a new country. No. Congratulations. I've, what the tr- Yes, no. The trend, I should say, not discover. The trend is really that we typically are putting more touchscreens in front of the younger grades and we're seeing more Chromebooks at the upper grades. However, that's shifting and it depends where you go. So when people ask me, should I use Google Classroom? It all depends on your students what they already know, and what devices you have. So Christine, who I mentioned earlier, she's one-to-one with Chromebooks, but she has them every day and she has one for every student. If you can only get your hands on Chromebooks once every six weeks, it's going to take you half the day to get them logged in because they're not going to remember. And so things like that are how I try to weigh out those situations on what's going to be worth your time. To me, Google Classroom is worth your time if you have access to devices on a regular basis, if not daily, almost daily, because that repetition is going to help them. And of course, Christine shared back in episode six, several little tips and little things that she tapes on the keyboard to help them learn things. And it's a great skill. It's great to get them started at that age group. The other thing is if you have the touch screens and even if you have them every day, you know, what are the capabilities of the apps that you want to use? Specifically Google Classroom. I think the mobile version of Google Classroom has come a long way. It still doesn't do everything that we can do in the desktop. However, it does have a couple of things that are only in the mobile version, including that annotation where you can tap on the little pen and write on top of things. And that might be super handy for some of those tactile learners. They are trying to draw or create something But also, as the teacher, you have some additional functionality like using the random student um, uh, feature where you can call on a student randomly from Google Classroom. But I 
I feel like Google Classroom is not one of those things that you say, every kid at every grade level should be using this every day. No, it all depends on what skills did they walk in with? And every teacher knows this. Every class is different. You may have a class that for some reason is rocking it when it comes to technology. Maybe they've had access at home. Mom and dad have helped them. They've been you know, given access to different devices and it's working well. But the next year, you may also see a very big digital divide. And we want to help them with those skills. But again, we don't want to frustrate our kids. And we definitely don't want to frustrate them when they're having to learn to read and do so many other big kid things as they go. So that's just sort of my soapbox moment, I guess, on Google Classroom. I think it's fantastic. And I know... Like I said, Christine, and I know a lot of other teachers in the primary grades are making very good use of it on a daily basis. But I also know even at high school, I would not be using Google Classroom if I couldn't use it at least several times a week. That's, to me, not worth the setup of it. So those those are all the things that I keep in mind with Google Classroom. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. That's you know, the, the more that you get out of it seems to be the more that you use it, just like you were saying. So yeah, totally with you on that. Um, you know, there's another, uh, useful feature that I think really plays in well with those, uh, K to two students. Um, and I've learned about this recently from a blog post by Susan Stewart. So, um, Susan Stewart, who has a blog that she calls primarily Google, um, she talks about a variety of things uh, related to using Google and Chromebooks and everything. She's got this post that says, K2 can Chromebook too. You know, she's part of this uh, hashtag called K2 can too. So just the letters, letter K number two, can two, T-O-O. Um, and so one of the things that, and there, there's lots of things related to Chromebooks in this post. It's a really good one. But there's one thing that sort of caught my eye that surprised me a little bit which I thought was brilliant once I read it. She said, what's the big deal about screenshots? And so in within this post in particular, um, you have students taking a screenshot as part of different things that they're doing. And she says, I thought this was such a brilliant idea. She says, teaching young learners to take a screenshot allows them to capture and share evidence of learning from a wide variety of online resources. Pairing a screenshot with the recording and sharing tools of Seesaw provides opportunities for voice and audience. And then she says the potential becomes limitless. So I started thinking about that. If those kids can learn some of the basic uh, keyboard shortcuts, for instance, if you want to take a full screen um, screenshot, you've got the little um, window switcher button up at the top, you know, where they used to have the F keys. They've got the one that's it's like a little rectangle with a couple lines next to it. If you hold in control and push that, it's going to take a full screen screenshot. And if they can learn to do control shift and that button, it's a partial screen where you activate a little crosshair and you can draw around where you want to take the screenshot. And so if you think about it, if they're able to start grabbing those screenshots, if they learn those shortcuts, that's kind of one of those real um, basic sort of technology skills that you can use in a variety of um, in a variety of situations. And that's something that they will continue to be able to use. And so that's that's kind of the cool thing I think about these screenshots is once the kids, even if they don't exactly know what the control key is and what CTRL stands for, they can learn the places on the sh- on the uh, keyboard and they can learn how to do those um, shortcuts. 
again, even if they don't know what the button means, just spatially looking at where it is on the keyboard, they can make that connection and start using those screenshot or those uh, shortcuts. And so if they're able to take a screenshot like that and start dropping it into a slide or dropping it into a document, um, there's a lot that they can do with that. So um, kudos to Susan on that one for opening my mind and other people's minds to the power of the screenshot when it comes to the littles. Yeah, I love that idea. That's that's something that you just don't think of. You don't think of teaching screenshots, to, especially to the younger ones. I think we don't even think of it as a skill that we probably teach until they're almost out of our doors. So I really like that we're thinking differently about that. I want to leave us off with another idea. And this actually comes from a lot of different places. I've seen this shared in many different ways. But I want us to all think about ways that we can collaborate between grade levels. So having the older kids come in and teach the littles how to do things, we're empowering our students in a lot of different ways. But, you know, they could also collaborate and work together on different projects Pam Hewler posted on Twitter just last week about her K-8 school, which is these days it feels pretty rare to have kindergarten through eighth grade all in one building. But she's looking at it as an advantage because she had first graders who came in with a plan for their projects and the seventh graders taught them how to use Google and the Explore tool to complete their project. So this takes the burden off of the teacher especially when facilitating that with some of the younger grades can be so difficult that these kids are getting one-on-one assistance from older grades. And I love it. I think anytime we can cross collaborate between grade levels and get these kids helping each other is fantastic. And we all know that the research actually supports that kids learn better from each other than they do from us. (laughs) Gasp. But it's true that they can really learn something and take it a little bit deeper and make those connections with other students, whether they are older or younger. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, such a, such an important point. I think that's a great place to leave this off. So we've got lots and lots of resources and links and other things that we didn't even get to on our show notes. So definitely go check those out. GoogleTeacherTribe.com slash 97. There's a letter in your mailbox. Hey, you know what? This is all your mail. Hey, maybe I'll give you a call sometime. You've got mail. All right, Tribe, it's mailbag time. And we've got a really cool idea shared with us from Jen Conti. She's from Ohio. And she's going to introduce you to this idea that she calls podcast smashing. This is such a cool thing. Go ahead and take it, Jen. I'm Jen Conti, a tech integration specialist from Northeast Ohio. We've all heard of app smashing, but I wanted to share with you some podcast smashing. I use closed captioning in Google Slides, which I heard on your Google Teacher Tribe podcast, and smashed it with Jake Miller's EDU duct tape podcast philosophy of using tech to solve a problem or address a need in the classroom. I had a friend at another school who needed a way to close caption their morning broadcast for a hearing impaired student. So I tested this at our school. I had a student open a Google slide, put it in present mode, and turn on closed captioning. As our morning broadcast aired, the Google slide picked up the voice of the students in the broadcast and displayed the words on her screen, and the student was able to read what was being said. The perfect fix for the problem. 
thank you guys so much for being so inspirational. Listening to your podcast and others, I've gotten so many great ideas of things that I can do in the classroom to help students at our school. I appreciate all you've done and congratulations on 1 million downloads. I'm looking forward to the 100th episode. Ah, this is such a neat idea. You know, um, I've been seeing more and more teachers using the closed captioning, the sort of like live captioning on Google Slides. And this is such a good idea. I mean, you know, if it's available, all we've got to do is just fire it up. And if the audio can be heard by the microphone, it's going to automatically turn it over into those closed captions. And they're not going to be perfect, but, you know, maybe they're, they're better than nothing. And if nothing was your only option, then, you know, this is, this is a really good one. So uh, kudos to Jen for, um, you know, thinking of this sort of outside of the norm type of way to use this. And if you'd like to see this in action, Jen does have a video. You can go check that out in the show notes, um, googleteachertribe.com slash 97, and you can go see a video of this actually happening. I love this. This is a fantastic idea. Thanks so much, Jen. I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and this is not actually from the mailbag, but I wanted to thank the listeners for all of the reviews that you have been leaving in iTunes. So love reading these. In fact, some of them are super fun. And our last two I want to share with you. So Jake Miller, host of Edu Duct Tape, you may know him, and he's also been on the podcast before. And he says, if you're an educator in a Google for Education school district, this is a must listen. Matt and Casey, keep it light and fun while also keeping listeners up to date on any new Googly features or updates and focusing on how the tools can be used to benefit our learners. Thanks for providing this content to us all, Matt and Casey. And thank you so much for that. Yes. Oh, thanks, Jake. And our next one is from Lisa. And Lisa says, this podcast gets me excited for learning with every episode. Matt and Casey share their knowledge and the expertise of the entire Google Teacher Tribe with tips and tricks to use immediately. Without fail, I venture off down the rabbit hole to explore ways to purposely integrate technological tools to infuse learning in my classroom. Thanks for all of the inspiration. And yes, Lisa, I think we we even go through some rabbit holes on the episodes as mm-hmm. we're recording, but I totally feel you. So thanks so much for those and keep them coming because these reviews help other educators find the podcast as well. Okay, I'm going to jump into the blog bag. Have we done that yet? <laughs> you said jump in the blog bag. Let's jump into- I love it. The blog bag. We've jumped into the mailbag and the news and updates, and now we're jumping into the vlogs. I have a guest post that I wanted to share with you. It's also a podcast interview with someone you have heard of, probably if you've been listening to GTT for very long. It is an interview with Craig Clement here, here in Texas, and I asked him to share ways that we can integrate technology in the math classroom because so many math teachers really struggle with finding meaningful ways to do it besides just replacing paper. And he gave us a ton of ideas for multiple grade levels. So that information is linked in the show notes, as well as a quick reminder that my Google certification courses will open very soon, November 19th. And they will only be open for enrollment until midnight central time on December 3rd. So if you're interested, go to getgooglecertified.com. 
Nice. Yeah. Don't miss out on that. All right. So quickly, I uh, just recently published a post on Ditch That Textbook that includes a template about a tool that I'll bet a lot of your students have probably had some experience with, TikTok. So TikTok, which used to be called Musical.ly, it's all about these little short video clips and sharing them with others. Um, you know, using that in class by having students download the app, not so good. There's lots of uh, roadblocks that can get in our way. But as I like to say um, on my blog and give examples of, uh, you don't need the app to create the experience. So there's this free template that you can make a copy of and use that creates sort of like a TikTok style experience with students. They can use it with images. They can use it with videos. Um, so if you're interested in kind of tapping into that craze that students are so excited about right now, there is a, a template that you can get that you can go assign through Google Classroom or your learning management system. Um, and then in addition to that, I also wanted to mention that coming up in about a month or so is the Ditch That Textbook Digital Summit. This will be, I think, my fourth year doing this. It's my free online conference for teachers that uh, comes at the end of every year. Got lots of really good guests coming up. Um, start revealing those pretty soon. But if you want to make sure that you catch it, because you can get free certificates of completion for professional development credit for watching the videos, the video presentations in the summit. If that sounds like something you want to do, you can head to ditchsummit.com and get registered. And we will shoot you an email when it starts to get close. And then when the summit opens, you're going to get all of the notifications so you don't miss a thing. So that's at ditchsummit.com. All right, Tribe, that wraps up yet another episode. We've got lots of these tools and ideas that you can use in the primary classroom. Hopefully something has been useful to you, whether you teach primary or anything else. I'll bet there's probably something that you could use there. So we appreciate you so much and appreciate you listening to the show. And if you haven't yet, uh, please do make sure that you subscribe through whatever method that you use to get your podcasts. And if you haven't told anybody about it, if you like the show, if you love the show, then maybe let somebody else know about it because we do love to continue to grow that tribe so that we can reach as many people as we can. So we will see you on the next episode of the Google Teacher Tribe podcast. Bye, y'all. Thanks for listening to the Google Teacher Tribe podcast. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, and by visiting googleteachertribe.com. Get in on the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag GTTribe. Until next time, keep harnessing the G Suite power, and may the Googles be with you.